You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Brendan Scott entitled Thomas Jones, Elizabethan Bishop of Meath. In a letter written on the 18th of November 1581, a young Chancellor of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin named Thomas Jones related the executions of George Netterville, Robert Sherlock and Christopher Eustace. Jones had been assigned by the Dublin government to extract confessions or conversions from those condemned to death for their part in the pale conspiracies of the early 1580s. His report of the executions, I think, give a good indication uh, of the depth of estrangement uh, between radical Catholicism and the Church of Ireland at this particularly tense period. Jones's attempt to convert these men as they went to the scaffold clearly enraged them and they cried to Jones, get behind me, Satan. Jones wrote then that when Christopher Eustace was going up the ladder, um, he, uh, Jones says to him, will you not pray for the Queen? And uh, he said, oh yes, I'll pray for her, all right. And he said, God amend her, God amend her. So which wasn't the expected uh, prayer for the Queen. Jones stated his regret about Eustace's attitude and he ended his report by noting, this was all we could get of him. There was no need to describe what happened next and Jones didn't bother. In this short talk, I'm going to examine the life of the author of this report, the final Elizabethan Bishop of Meath, Thomas Jones. In many ways, it's the tale of a man overseeing a state religion which had already been rejected by the majority of people living in Ireland. Born in Lancashire and educated at Christ College in Cambridge, where he graduated MA in 1573, Jones was ordained soon after. An ambitious man, he moved to Ireland shortly after his ordination where he was soon ensconced in the household of Adam Loftus, the Archbishop of Dublin. Jones married the sister of the Archbishop's wife, tying them even closer still. In 1577, he was appointed Chancellor of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin and was subsequently made Dean there in 1582, holding the position until his appointment to Meath two years later. Adam Loftus supported the moves to make Jones either Bishop of Meath or Archbishop of Dublin. This would have been very handy for Loftus to have a man in that position. And in April 1584, he wrote to Francis Walsingham, thanking him for the nomination of Jones to the Bishopric of Meath. Jones's appointment as Bishop of Meath followed on the 6th of June 1584, along with a request from the Irish Privy Council that the new bishop be made a member of that body also. And he was sworn into that on the 22nd of June. So now Jones was a leading figure of both church and state in Elizabethan Ireland. Now, the Diocese of Meath, which Jones entered in 1584, could not be said to have been a good advertisement for religious reform. The state-sponsored religion had failed to put down any substantial roots there, and any reforms that had been introduced in the early years of the Reformation had faltered by the Elizabethan period. Although much of it was located in the heart of the English Pale and was a wealthy diocese in Irish terms, Meath was still too poor for many university-educated clerics to consider taking up an appointment there. By the 1570s, only 18 of more than 100 unbeneficed clergy in Meath could speak English, the rest dismissed by Henry Sidney as Irish rogues having very little Latin, less learning and civility. Now, Jones didn't have his mitre too long before becoming embroiled in controversy, and this is something that follows his career uh, uh, wherever he goes. Uh, 
Jones uh, and Loftus as the two most powerful religious leaders in the Pale, as well as close associates bound by marital ties, they made a formidable team and they soon made themselves enemies. Corrupt practices in the court of faculties, which had been founded to stamp out corruption, and it, it is uh, corrupt itself, uh, had attracted the attention and disapproval of commentators such as Anthony Trollope and Henry Wallop. And they stated their belief that Loftus was misappropriating the profits of the court in order to provide for his children. And this is something that's uh, stated a couple of times, this accusation. Archbishop Long of Armagh also criticised Loftus's, criticised Loftus's behaviour in 1585 in a number of letters to Walsingham. To counter these accusations, uh, John Perrett, the Lord Deputy, established a new commission which was charged with carrying out a visitation of the Church of Ireland to correct any of these defects or any ill-disciplined clergy, uh, which there were. Jones, realising the threat which this commission posed uh, to Loftus and by extension to himself, penned a stinging letter to Walsingham in which he accused Perrett of establishing the commission made up of base and infamous persons out of spite against Loftus in an attempt to undermine the Archbishop. Support for Perrett's commission was withdrawn and a commission less radical in direction was instead drawn up. Thus it was that a chance for meaningful reform within the Church of Ireland was blocked by its two most powerful leaders in the Pale. Jones was also, and this is something you see throughout his career, opposed uh, to a softly, softly approach in religious tolerance. The idea that the Catholic population in Ireland should be reasoned with rather than co uh, coerced into conformity seemed folly to Jones, and he complained of the attempt by the master of the rose, Nicholas White, to persuade uh, Perrett in a council session in 1585 to use tolerance in the matter of the oath and religion to make easy the deputies' attempts to draw Catholics in matters of policy to good conformity. Jones attacked Perrett and those within the Dublin administration who, for political reasons, had dealt with Catholic leaders in order to gain their support in Parliament that year. For Jones, there should be no toleration of Catholics on the part of Christian princes, as they were idolaters and infidels, with whom you could plainly not do business. Rather, Jones believed, the government should root Catholics out for that they will be pricks in their eyes, thorns in their sides and whips to their backs. So it's, you know, poor Perrett, I mean, he'd been instructed from the Queen to go easy on the Catholics to get stuff through Parliament, and then Jones is hitting him uh, for doing exactly that. He's also soon vociferously resisting attempts by the Dublin administration to collect first fruits during the uh, 1580s. Jones was reported to have used the money collectors most hardly, and the new bishop's unwillingness to pay the crown tax was severely criticised. In late 1586, Roger Wilbraham, who was Ireland's Solicitor General, complained to William Cecil that when he requested the tax from Jones, the bishop was so offended thereat, as he charged me openly at council board, that I proceeded against Her Majesty's express command to myself not to deal with extremity. So when he looks for the money, uh, uh, Jones says, look, at the Queen said, you know, go easy on me, so I don't know uh, what you're looking for this money for. Wilbraham, along with the attorney, uh, the attorney Christopher Calthorpe, sued Loftus, Jones and other clergymen for their failure to pay the large sums owed in first fruits. In a letter in 1587 from Henry Wallop to Cecil, uh, he stated that Jones claimed to have given 100 marks in cash and £500 in bonds towards payment of these taxes, while Wallop claimed that he had received not one penny from him, so very different accounts. Uh, Jones at this point seems to have been more engaged with securing his financial position rather than establishing and securing the Protestant Reformation in his new diocese. And he wasn't unlike his predecessor Hugh Brady in that regard as well. Brady kicked up about uh, the first fruits as well.
Jones again was soon embroiled in further controversy in the late 1580s. Uh, Barnaby Rich, the English soldier and commentator, made a thinly veiled attack upon both Loftus and Jones for what he perceived as their lack of effort in introducing religious reforms in their diocese and throughout the Pale more generally. Walsingham soon tired of the intrigues and disagreements and he wrote a sharp letter to Jones in 1589. Now that letter no longer survives but we have the reply and we know from the reply that Walsingham had criticised the bishop for only preaching once a year which was a poor showing for a cleric who had once been uh, noted for his public speaking and for doing so in Dublin rather than in his own diocese of Meath. Jones replied that he wasn't unmindful of his diocesan duties and he promised to be more diligent hereafter. In a letter joined, uh, jointly signed by Loftus and Jones in March 1591 to the Archbishop of Canterbury, they admitted the failure of religious reform in their diocese, uh, the wealthiest and most English in Ireland, uh, writing that the people there had grown into such obstinacy and disobedience that we find it a matter almost impossible either to reclaim them or to draw them to any good conformity. It was a remarkably frank admission. For Jones, religious conformity went hand in hand with political loyalty. You couldn't be Catholic and loyal to the crown as well. His experiences at the execution of rebels in 1581 had at least taught him that. In 1591, they requested that the leaders of the Pale, whose allegiances were suspect, be sent to England to be severely dealt with in an attempt to prevent any further general defection of the Irish in causes of religion. There was no sign of carrot from Loftus and Jones merely stick. In 1591, Jones again is at the centre of controversy in his dealings with Michael Fitzsimons, who is a Catholic schoolmaster with Landon Meath. Fitzsimons had been tried for treason in spring 1591, found guilty and executed on the 15th of May of that year. And Colin Lennon here has noted uh, some of the slightly later counter-reformation apologists who emphasise the personal interest which Jones took in this case. According to these near-contemporary writers... Jones offered Fitzsimons a reprieve if the beleaguered schoolmaster would make his estate in Meath over to the bishop. This Fitzsimons refused to do and he went to his execution. But the state papers, uh, contemporary state papers also note that the Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam hastily appointed a private session to deal with Fitzsimons so that his farm might be bestowed on the Bishop of Meath. Religion, Jones later wrote in the tract in 1599, and this is a quote, Religion p- teaches us piety and Christian charity. It forbiddeth spoil and robbery, murder and bloodshed. So had the bereaved family of Michael Fitzsimons read that tract, they would have been well justified pondering just how Jones's attitude to avarice and bloodletting seemed to have changed over the years. To be involved publicly in such an open display of avarice uh, would have been another black mark against the bishop in the eyes of the local Catholic community. And accusations and suspicions of venality continued to haunt Jones throughout his career in Meath and beyond. Now, political events would soon overtake these concerns, however, and the violence and instability soon to engulf the island during the Nine Years' War would mean that diocesan religious reform was low on the bishop's list of priorities for some years. Secular and military considerations would come to take up much of Jones's time during the latter part of the 1590s, as he kept the Dublin administration up to date with uh, military activities in Meath, uh, and he sometimes accompanied the Lord Deputy on his business further north. In August 1591, Jones, uh, who had been close to Hugh O'Neill, risked serious criticism and provoked the ire of Henry Bagnall by marrying using Protestant rites uh, Tyrone to Bagnall's sister, uh, Mabel. This left Jones in a somewhat vulnerable position when O'Neill entered the rebellion, uh, the rebellion in 1595. He was always seen as, well, what exactly side was he on? 
And perhaps because of that, Jones was very active during the Nine Years' War, and numerous letters survived from Jones to the Dublin administration during the 1590s, particularly 97 and 98, uh, which helped the Dublin administration keep abreast of rebel activity in the border regions. In 1599, Hugh O'Neill compiled a 22-point list of demands which he hoped would gain him the support of uh, the Pale Gentry. And Hiram Morgan has talked about uh, uh, Jones's uh, reply to this. Um, Jones's answer of a faithful servant, which is the name of the document uh, which he wrote, it allows the reader insight into the bishop's attitudes to religion and the role which uh, they played in state building. Jones stated that only God, and not men, and especially not popes, uh, could depose a ruler. It was God, he argued, who taketh away kings and setteth up kings. He looseth the collar of kings, he leadeth away princes as a prey, and overthroweth the mighty. What we read in Jones's answer is his unshakable belief that a monarch derived his or her power directly from God and was therefore above the reproof of his or her subjects. Jones felt that the state was far too lenient towards malcontents, believing that the sword by God's divine ordinance is committed to a prince within his dominions for the punishment of sin and reward of well-doing, and subjects have no warrant in the book of God either to take the sword against their natural prince. He went on to write that God would, in his justice, either amend, uh, this he's referring to uh, recusants, would in his, in his justice either amend or reform them, or otherwise in his justice end them. Which is an extraordinary phrase. Um, but Jones, writing from an island which had now become a war zone, uh, also performed something of an about turn and now went some way to accepting the politic view that the government needed to support the Catholic Old English of the Pale and Munster as a means of undermining O'Neill. So he did change his mind a bit in this. By late 1603, it was obvious to Jones that the uh, destruction wrought upon his diocese over the previous nine years had made the chances for religious reform even more remote. Indeed, at the height of the Nine Years' War in 1599, Jones admitted that many of the Pales men were somewhat addicted to the Catholic religion. In a famous quote from 1600, the Queen noted her displeasure at reports which claimed that the most part of churches within the two large dioceses of Dublin and Meath are utterly ruined, insomuch as between Dublin and Athlone, which contains 60 miles, there are so few churches standing as they will scarcely make a plural number and so few pastors to teach or preach the word, as in most of them there is not so much a reading minister. Elizabeth also reprimanded Jones and Loftus for their remiss and unchristian-like carriage in their spiritual callings, whereby idolatry is grown and Jesuits and other Rome-running priests do so swarm. Now even into, taking into account some exaggeration, it's a damning indictment to think of Jones and Loftus, uh, as well as an insight into the devastating effects of the Nine Years' War on the Church of Ireland. In 1604, Jones and Loftus made a report on the state of the Church of Ireland in the Pale and it made depressing reading for the new king, James I. Jones wrote that the patronage of many benefices in Meath had been granted to recusants who placed curates of their own choosing without sufficient maintenance, neither do they keep in repair the chances of their churches. That same year, following a directive from Dublin to consider new ways of establishing an Anglican ministry in Ireland, Jones and Loftus both compiled certificates of their diocese uh, benefices and their values. This report demonstrated that the values of the rectories and vicarages where noted had fallen, most likely as a result of the war, particularly living situated in the marcher regions where Gaelic raids had been quite common, particularly during the Nine Years' War. The lack of financial resources was, as Stephen Ellis has pointed out in the past, a severe retardant in any reform attempts made by the Church of Ireland. 
The poverty relative to English livings made it difficult to attract university-educated clerics to Meath, uh, although Meath was, was the second wealthiest diocese uh, in Ireland to Dublin throughout this period. Although this had always been the case, there's nothing new there, the destruction wrought upon the diocese in the previous decade, I think, had uh, just exacerbated an already difficult situation. But Jones was not inclined to look to himself, nor were many of the Church of Ireland practitioners at this time, when apportioning blame for this dismal state of affairs. Instead, he was yet another who laid the blame for the failure of religious reform squarely at the feet of those who refused to accept it. Jones referred to the backward people who keep seditious Jesuits and seminary priests in their houses, and who, with willful obstinacy, had their hearts set against the true religion. But it must be stressed, however, that Jones's diocese was not the only one uh, which had failed to gain support for the Reformation at the end of Elizabeth's reign. Uh, Henry Jeffreys has uh, published quite recently about this. Uh, one commentator wrote in 1604 that there were barely 120 Irish-born Protestants in Ireland, and a 1600 state report uh, noted that only around 20 Irish-born householders in Dublin attended the state services, and only four of those were in regular receipt of communion. Following Loftus' death in April 1605, Jones was appointed to the position as Archbishop of Dublin on the 8th of November. In Dublin, Jones continued a zero-tolerance approach towards Catholicism and its practitioners, and he continued to get caught up in all manner of controversies, but that's a story for another day. I have argued in the past, uh, as of others uh, like Kieran Brady, uh, that the Reformation had failed definitively by the early 1580s, around the time that Jones had come into the Bishopric of Meath. It's doubtful that any man uh, could have halted and reversed that failure, perhaps it would have, but the harsh, the harsh uh, anti-recusancy attitude adopted by Jones and his dealings with Michael Fitzsimons as well made it clear that he was certainly not the man to achieve this. You know, you need good leaders, people who can, that men want to follow, that people want to follow, and by you know, doing things, uh, unpopular things like with Michael Fitzsimons, that wouldn't have uh, helped his popularity. Uh, had money been available from the beginning of the Reformation attempt in Ireland to support the placement in Irish benefices of university graduates from England and Scotland, perhaps the outcome may have been somewhat different. Maybe it wouldn't have been. The Nine Years' War certainly didn't help any attempts which Jones may have made to further religious reform in the diocese, but there seems to be little evidence of his attempts to reform Meath in his ten years there prior to the beginning of the war. The Church of Ireland did, however, survive its early tumultuous years and continue through the chaos of the 1590s, albeit in a much weakened state. It was noted in 1611 that the cares of state had worn down Thomas Jones and the man recognised for his preaching and efforts to convert in his early years by the time of his death in 1619 was now associated with corrupt practices, political underhandedness and avarice. In some ways, Thomas Jones's slow decline was mirrored in the failure of the church which he had sworn to promote and protect. Thank you.